All right, everyone. Well, I have Gene Epstein here today. I'm very excited for this one. I've listened to countless of hours of him debating in the Soho Forum or on different podcasts, Tom Woods podcast or various others. Um, for people who don't know, Gene Epstein is the director and moderator of the Soho Forum, a monthly debate series. And he wrote for 26 years as the economics and books editor at Barron's Magazine. I'm really happy to have you here. Liam, uh, it's a, a privilege uh, to be interviewed by a guy who's interviewed the likes of uh, Scott Horton, uh, uh, Pete Quinones, uh, I forget who else, but, uh, you know, Scott Horton is probably closest to uh, to our resident libertarian genius. So, uh, and I've noticed you've done like three interviews with him. And so uh, I'm honored to be in that company. They're, yeah. they're very easy interviews to do because you just ask him one question and he takes off. You get him wound up exactly. And um, he takes off. He's incredible. And indeed, his books are unusual. And uh, I keep telling people that much as you think uh, Scott Horton in interviews, and indeed, I've used him in two debates, as you may know, at the Soul Forum, much as you think that he shines there, I do recommend his books. I, actually, I've listened to his books mainly uh, on Audible. And uh, it's amazing how thorough he is, how it covers every base. Uh, they're truly great experiences. And so I'm saying you haven't quite totally experienced Scott Horton, unless you're familiar with his books. Uh, the, uh, I, you, enough already. That's, uh, that's a nice Jewish title. The time to end the war on terror. And what's the other one about Afghanistan? I forget the title. Uh, but it's also uh, extraordinary. Yeah. And for anyone who wants to experience the Soho Forum, they can uh, check out the most recent yeah. debate, I think, that you guys released, which was at, where was that? At, at Porkfest, Pork in Porcupine Fest in New Hampshire. Uh, and I think Scott did a very good job. Actually, I, I do think that uh, the, pre the previous debate, which, of course, the big sensational confrontation he had with Neocon Bill Crystal, <laughs> I think he blew it a little bit. Uh, you know, his 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 fan base was telling him, uh, you know, uh, insult Bill Crystal, uh, call him the scum of the earth, and I think Scott shouldn't have done that. It didn't really serve his cause with with other people. But apart from that, again, he's a brilliant guy. Both debates are, are, are great to listen to. And I think especially the most recent one where he kept his cool and he was in his incredibly lucid self on this subject. And I liked very much the way he framed the issue. The debate was about, of course, um, Russia in, in Ukraine and uh, what to do about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about the Soho Forum a little later. Um, but before we get into that, can you just give a little bit about your background? I know that you kind of grew up in the left. Your your mom was a communist. and Mommy was a commie. You have to rhyme it. Mommy was a commie. Mommy was a commie. And, yes. and then at some point, you became a libertarian. So do you just want to yeah. tell that story? Yeah, um, I've told the story many times in different ways. As a matter of fact, recently, Walter Block and some others commissioned uh, origin stories from libertarians. And I, I wrote up... Uh, uh, my origin story in that way, uh, starting out as a Stalinist at age six or seven uh, with my mother's uh, tutelage, because she was indeed a member of the uh, card counting member of the Communist Party. And, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, touching the highlights, I drifted in my teenage years to being a democratic socialist. 
um, I felt in those days I could sort of split the difference between being left wing and being pro civil libertarian. Uh, the Democratic Socialists, you are too young to know too much about them, but uh, in, even today, by the way, the Democratic Socialists of America do think that they're for civil liberties, that they do care about free speech and freedom of choice. And uh, and so all that was good. And uh, so I felt, well, this is the way to be a socialist. And indeed, the Democratic Socialists, especially in those days, uh, were uh, were very dismissive of the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union, as well as of uh, of Maoist China. Uh, and of course, my mother was a big advocate of the Soviet Union. And so uh, we were in opposition to each other in those days. Uh, but um, uh, I then... Uh, went to graduate school in economics, new school, um, studied sort of left-wing oriented economics, uh, began to teach it in college and began to get increasingly disaffected from the whole subject and rather confused about all aspects of the issue. Uh, and then by chance, this is that historical moment, cue to that moment in the movie about me, where I'm thumbing through a copy uh, of uh, Man, Economy and State in the New School Library. A couple of times I pick it up, put it down, look at it. I didn't know too much about the author Murray Rothbard at the time, but then I forget why, but I started to read it. It's a two volume work and it meant a great deal to me at the time because I was teaching economics at the time and uh, Rothbard not only sets forth the principles of Austrian economics, he, uh, he has a lot of digressions in that book about the problems with mainstream economics. And so that was, uh, I had a series of eureka moments reading that book. I was in my late twenties by that point. And uh, that led me to the laissez-faire bookshop in downtown Manhattan, which was then a bricks and mortar bookshop that sold virtually everything by free market writers. And uh, I used to go there every week and uh, browse and buy a couple of books. And so over the next few years, I pretty much read everything in the canon. I, uh, I actually attended a couple of seminars at NYU where Israel Kersner was. I even stormed into Rothbard's class once at Brooklyn Polytechnic without even asking him if I could audit. Uh, I didn't have much contact with him uh, personally, but uh, uh, read all his books. And so that pretty much converted me. Uh, but that, that that's my reading experience. But of course, I had to, uh, I, I had to address my two issues having to do with freedom and prosperity. Um, being left-wing oriented, it cared very, it mattered very much to me to be able to grasp how the free market really is uh, the, the poor person's ticket to prosperity, uh, how the free market is, uh, is, is essential to lifting the, the living standards of the broad masses of people. And I felt that that's, I, I felt since that that's the main thing I wanna teach people because I believe that there is a, a common perception on the part of left-wingers and progressives that the, that free market economics is really okay for gifted people. They, they can be free, but, uh, but the ordinary person gets shafted. And I think really the reverse is the case. Um, incidentally, of course, understanding how uh, 
free market capitalism is essential to liberty, uh, given the scarcity of resources, given the fact that you don't want the government to control those scarce resources, because how how then can you allocate labor and capital to publishing uh, uh, freely in society? Uh, all of those issues were very important to me as well. Once I've resolved the issues of freedom and prosperity, pretty much had the two pillars of economics nailed down, and the rest is commentary. The rest is everything I've studied uh, as an economist. So that's uh, pretty much it. But in terms of my career, I wandered. Uh, I really did not like college. I did not like high school. I didn't like elementary school. <laughs> the whole thing was a complete waste of time for me. When I say to people, I would have been better educated had I not attended any school at all. What I really mean is, for some reason, I actually could read before I got to school. I don't know how, nobody taught me, but I used to read signs all the time and piece them out. And I, and uh, then on top of that, I pretty much learned how to do sums. And then, uh, of course, I learned a few things in school, but when you think about all of the wasted time in school and all of the things I had to unlearn, had I simply been on my own, I think it would have made far more intellectual progress on my own than going to school. Uh, and that's my uh, long-winded story about why I dropped out of teaching anyway uh because i didn't want to i didn't want to be subject subject to subject young people to the coerciveness of school i went to wall street uh i uh, i then got a job at barron's financial weekly which is where i was pretty happy covering the economy every week and being book review editor just as you suggested i left uh, barron's in uh, uh early uh, 2000 2018 and uh, and prior to that, I'd started my debate society, the Soul Forum, and uh, and that's where I am to this day. So I should shut up because I've given you probably more than enough detail, details than you bargained for. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very interested in what you were saying about school and academia. I just finished yeah. four years at the University of Montana, yeah. and I had a very similar experience. I, you know, I I got the what you would expect out of a philosophy department kind of course at at the University of Montana. Just any college you learn roles but you never touch into libertarianism if you do it's yeah. maybe nozick maybe yeah. hayek a little mm -hmm. road to mm -hmm. serfdom yeah but most of it is roles and towards the end i was i, I got pretty resentful because it was like i could have been spending my time reading hayek rothbard and and whoever yeah. um but I, I am wondering what you feel about academia right now do you think that there's any value to it um and and are you pretty optimistic about academia Oh, wow. Optimistic. Well, you know, I, I don't have a I mean, I, I only know what I what I read from, uh, you know, people like Phil Magnus. What's that book he collaborated on with uh, that other guy with they, they, the, the, the the preface to that book has that great passage where they say uh, in that book about academia, study of the economics and politics of academia, uh, a superb book. And I'm um, sorry, I forget the title. But anyway, uh, they began, begin by saying that if you've ever heard of that corporation Enron, which is a, a dishonest corporation that went bust, that, that the average university makes Enron look good by comparison, looks ethical by comparison. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I would want at the very least to roll back the state uh, uh, institutions uh, of higher learning. Uh, I do think that uh, a uh, libertarian society will always have colleges and universities and research institutions and places for, for people um, 
to go to learn things at any age, by the way, especially when they're 40 and 50, when people tend to get more reflective about life and want to read up a little bit more. You're unusual in that you do have a great deal of intellectual curiosity. Most young people pretty much want to get out on the workaday world. Uh, they want to, and of course, if it's necessary for them to study a vocation, then maybe the classroom is good for that. Maybe not. Most of what you really know, you learn on the job. We should really just, oh, just basically abolish all of schooling. Parents would make sure that the kids learn the literacy and numeracy. And, and then uh, then uh, businesses would basically set up uh, apprenticeships. Medical businesses would set up apprenticeships. Legal businesses would set up apprenticeships uh, the, uh, in, in different fields. It's my bar mitzvah plan, as I like to put it. You're 13 when you bar mitzvah. At the age of 13, so long as you master the basics, you know, three R's, then you go out into the workaday world. Workaday world, for the most part, where you're probably uh, an apprentice. You may be earning your keep, by being an apprentice in, in a different field, or maybe your parents are helping to pay for it, we could we could free up uh, you know a couple of trillion dollars of money wasted on 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 schooling that 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 even parents of limited means could have to send their kids to apprenticeships. A business would respond because if it, if uh, if business can no longer use colleges as markers for qualifications, then business would turn to other ways of doing so. Uh, which gets you into the main, gets me to the main point about why people earn more when they finish high school and college. They earn more, not the, because they've learned any marketable skills, but because it's a form of signaling uh, that if you are an employer and you've got, you know, five applicants who dropped out of college and five applicants who finished college, then uh, the fact that these applicants were able to finish college just indicates that they're more conformist, they're more team players, they stick to things more. And and so, of course, you're going to be biased in favor of employing those five who finished college. And then once we, we, we reach uh, critical mass and we've got public universities being funded and one third of kids graduate from college, then it's very hard for kids who've just graduated from high school to compete with all those kids who finished college. But if we roll back state intervention, then 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 we just have some private colleges left. And it would be pretty much the way it was in the 1950s, when at least if you finished high school, even junior high school, you could qualify for a job. We didn't need a college education to do so. So at least that would be a step in the right direction. But my main point, by the way, is that in a way, you, you're not a good example of, of what uh, schooling subjects people to, because by and large, the vast majority of young people are not interested in sitting in the classroom, listening to lectures and reading books. Uh, this is not what young people are all about. Uh, that, that again, that comes later. And even then, for, for most people, it may never happen that they ever become reflective enough on life to want to read and study. Uh, and certainly the vast majority of kids uh, in, uh, who are 18, 19 and 20 uh, don't have that inclination. And so that's why it's completely wasted on them. But, but of course, you've asked me a different question, which is, you know, to what extent is the universities dominated by pernicious ideology? Uh, and of course, I don't know whether that, that will ever go away. They certainly have gotten worse over time in that regard. And so that's why I, I steer clear. Of them, but of course, with that said, with that said, there are plenty of, uh, of, of professors in different places, like at George Mason, uh, like at other universities, like even at NYU as well. The free market people. There are some thoughtful people who are still 
in the university, and I'm grateful that they're there. There are some thoughtful uh, fellow travelers at Harvard who do free market economics, and they're useful as well. So, uh, so I make use of these people, but by and large, if it all shut down tomorrow, it would be fine. Although I don't anticipate that. Again, a, a healthy society will always have uh, colleges and universities where people like to go and reflect on life. And I hope that the average age of the people who go is, is a lot higher than 19 and 20. Uh, and of course, it's, it's also great that we have, uh, you know, we have schooling for older people. They, they uh, you know, a lot of classes that older people enroll in, all that's healthy. Uh, I guess to finish my long-winded rant, my personal experience as a professor in economics was that by the second year of teaching, I got so sick uh, of having to inflict myself on students that I made an announcement that anybody who signs up for this class has a, an automatic pass. All you have to do is sign up and you've passed the class and you're gonna get the credits. And uh, but I, then I said, well, if you want to get a good grade, though, uh, you have to show up, you know, so I had to make my peace with the system that way. But I uh, but what happened was that after my uh, my first class, maybe uh, uh, maybe 90 percent of the class uh, I never saw again, because, of course, once they were told that they could pass the class, they weren't interested. But then that 10 percent that remained was interested and I could teach them and I had a decent uh, teaching experience with that. 10%. So that's probably a good polling, which is that probably 90% of kids who are in high school and college really have no interest in being there. They'd much rather be doing something else with their lives. Uh, and But uh, as a practical matter, if I was going to continue to do this, then I don't think I would have lasted in academia. None of the students ratted on me. Had they ratted on me about what I was doing, I would have gotten fired. So sooner or later, they would have had my number if I'd continued doing this. So that's why if I was going to stick to my principles about not inflicting myself on students, then my days in academia were numbered anyway. And that's why I, uh, it's a, one of the big reasons why I left academia. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. And, and about like economic literacy there and, uh, and the amount of people who were actually interested in it in, well, in education or, yeah. or just while anecdotally, yeah. while I was going to school, it really seemed like a lot of uh, people didn't even understand the concepts that these Keynesians were trying to teach. Like yeah. they would, they would only give them mathematical models, but there would be no philosophy behind it. So yeah. there was no understanding at all. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I guess because the, the, and then then I, I could I could opine about the subject I know. Uh, you prompt me to do that, which is uh, you know economics. Mainstream economics is polluted, is undermined by by two uh, very crucial problems. Uh, the mainstream economist uh, wants to sit at the tables of power. Uh, um, that's a generalization, not true in all cases, but overwhelmingly there's a great ambition to, uh, you know, to run the, to be an economist of the Federal Reserve, to run the Federal Reserve, to get appointed to the, chair, to the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, it's, a, it's a much more, you get much more of a charge out of life if you, if you have power in the world than if you're sitting, you know, ranting on to a bunch of students who aren't, aren't too interested in what you have to say in the first place. And so it's an understandable desire. That's that's of course the, the, the that's what Cain John Maynard Keynes was all about. He was a power hungry person, and that's in in a way what defines Keynesianism. And so, if you want to sit at the tables of power, you formulate uh, economic issues uh, from that standpoint, from a sort of top down power oriented standpoint. Now, if that, as though that weren't enough of a problem, uh, mainstream economists also like to pretend that economics is a branch of math, a branch of physics, just to make it esoteric 
I guess. Uh, why that sickness has taken over them, I can't completely grasp, but that is an additional problem. And so with those two problems, uh, it's very difficult for mainstream economists to contribute very much other than mathematically oriented justifications for power, justifications for the Federal Reserve. Never can they ask a simple question, which is, does the Federal Reserve do, do more harm than good? Uh, does top-down planning do harm, more harm than good? I say never, and that's an exaggeration, uh, because uh, despite those two problems, uh, uh, mainstream economists sometimes produce interesting insights, do interesting research. Uh, once they actually drop those pretenses, once they sound, often when they sound like journalists, when they're simply trying to think through what happens in the economy, because many of them have some talent. And so I've learned things from mainstream economics despite all of those problems. But of course, I couldn't possibly subject a student, the average student to that uh, onslaught, because that average student is not going to be able to sort out the, the incredible chaff from the uh, from the kernels of wheat. So uh, so that's why uh, I wouldn't necessarily, I, I mean, as a matter of fact, I went to undergraduate school, I basically, you know, sleepwalked through, college, through, through undergraduate school at Brandeis. At that point, I was interested in becoming an actor, playwright, novelist. Anyway, I majored in history and I barely showed up for class and I got by. Uh, but uh, I didn't take any economics classes, and probably that was a good thing. I, I didn't pollute my mind with it. In graduate school, I started to study, of course, mainstream economics, and that was uh, uh, not a bad time to do so. Although, as I say, to recapitulate my history, I was getting increasingly uh, disaffected from it all, and I discovered Austrian econ economics because, in a way, uh, to conclude my final insight, Austrian economics is sort of like a, a redundancy. Uh, uh, we all think like Austrians, when we think about economics, we think about human action, motive, which is the title, of course, of Ludwig von Mises' great book. Uh, we think about motivation in markets, and we naturally do so when we think about economics. And, the Aust and, and uh, another great story to my mind is Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, who had a lot of good points as a free market economist, a number of bad points as well. Um, but uh, he, he published a methodology paper on the method of economics with this, that was truly wacko, uh, uh, having to do with the idea that economics makes sense only when it predicts adequately. It doesn't really have to explain. All it has to predict, do is predict. But oddly, Friedman never actually practiced that kind of economics anyway, by and large. Uh, uh, there's a, lo a lot of very good writings by Friedman where he's basically sounding like an Austrian economist as well. Uh, and so it's a mixed bag, but uh, again, going back uh, to the point, I would not especially recommend that a young person uh, take a program in economics. There are, however, some programs I gather, uh, you know, our mutual friend Sam Peterson is apparently enrolled in a program and you and I, of course, are gonna encounter each other down in Mises University, although it's not really a university, is it? It's just a couple of weeks of a program and that's useful. So, you know, pick up whatever knowledge you can, but uh, I wouldn't especially advocate uh, majoring in economics if you have to go to college. So now to transition a little to the yeah. Soho Forum, what prompted you to start that? What was the idea behind it? And, and how did you get to that position? Well, I've, I've always, I, I guess I've always been a sort of feisty debater type. Uh, and uh, I've liked debates. I, I do think that, uh, that the clash of ideas uh, in every field is, uh, is useful. And uh, I, uh, I, I was uh, disaffected from the way it was being done 
uh, by uh, some popular debate societies. Uh, they, uh, the, the, the problem was, uh, uh, one of the problems I think, was that it was two against two, two debaters against two debaters. They rarely collaborated with each other. They, they probably hadn't spoken with each other at all before they went on, except very briefly. And so uh, they were often uh, not really coordinated uh, in these debate societies. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, there was not enough time uh, given two against two for debaters to have more than you know, like six minutes of, of, of discussion. So it was rather scattered. Uh, and uh, I felt that uh, that there was a better model. And so, and then also, of course, I felt that none of the debate societies I was familiar with were really libertarian oriented. They were maybe at best friendly to libertarianism, uh, but not really oriented uh, directly toward libertarianism. And so I thought I would create a libertarian debate society uh, that would be strictly one debater against one debater so that each debater knows that he or she is totally responsible for the argument. You can't rely on your on your colleague because there is no colleague, it's just you. Uh, in addition, if it's one debater against one debater, each debater can speak in paragraphs, can get 12 to 15 to 17 minutes to make his case so that there's enough time for people to really get into the issues. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I wasn't really sure that I could get funding for it. That's one of the things I've never been good at, but just purely by coincidence, I knew a philanthropist named Don Smith. And when I told him I wanted to start this debate society, he did uh, cut me some money and, uh, and it took off. It was successful. Uh, I wasn't the one who had the idea by our fifth uh, debate uh, uh, session that we could charge tickets that people would actually pay to attend. But uh, one of my colleagues who was working, helping me on the, with the debate society did. And so now we charge $24 a ticket, $12 for students, and uh, people are willing to pay. That helps pay our costs. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm still getting money from the uh, Smith uh, Society and from some others. Uh, I have an office paid for, which is where I'm sitting now. Uh, I still don't take a salary from the Soul Forum uh, because, again, it's operating on a shoestring. Uh, and uh, because, again, I've never been that good at raising money, but we do have adequate money to, to, to put on our debates and to put on a, a, a series of debates in the future. Uh, the, the other part of uh, my debate society is a secondfold mission, which is to get libertarians together, to have a party, to do it in person. First of all, on the live stage, I've always loved the theater. And I know that part of the reason why people like to attend is that it, it is a kind of a theatrical evening. Uh, we do have, Oxford-style voting, uh, where uh, people, the audience votes yes, no, or undecided on the resolution before the debate begins and then after it ends. And then the uh, person who's moved the needle, the vote in his or her favor, wins the Tootsie Roll. That adds a little bit of drama, a little bit of climax to the evening. Uh, and uh, oh, we were picked up by the Reason Foundation. And uh, and as it happens, the guy I report to is head of all video at the Reason Foundation is my son, Jim Epstein. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not the, the son of the boss, I'm the dad of the boss. And he 
they release all, all our debates on video and podcast where they live on. And uh, I've been gratified that uh, a debate, I, I've done six debates at the Solar Forum, uh, three of them with socialists, and one of those debates with Richard Wolf, a emeritus professor and eminent Marxist, has gotten uh, nearly 5.2 million uh, views on YouTube. Uh, and uh, that's that's the record for the for reason. And uh, I'm gratified that it's gone out to a large crowd like that. So we begin with a crowd of, let's say, 200 paying customers. But uh, a number of our debates have gotten uh, more than 100,000 views. And uh, that mine in particular has been off the charts. I don't even know quite why with 5.2 million. So I'm gratified that uh, that I started it. Uh, and uh, I'm gratified that it's met with success. Through COVID, through the COVID period, uh, the, or the period I should really say, really of lockdowns, I had to do debates on Zoom, and I began to develop Zoom fatigue. Uh, we, we did eleven debates on Zoom, uh, and uh, that was okay. I'm glad we did them, but I'm certainly glad that we've returned to a live debate, which is where I like to do it. Uh, we do we do have the headache of flying people in, putting them in a hotel paying them a fee, uh, and uh, but putting it on a live stage is really something that's very important to me. And we will uh, as well, uh, you mentioned, um, I know when you're going to air this, I guess by now uh, it, will have, it will have happened, we will be doing a debate down at the Mises Institute to coincide with Mises University, a, a debate on gold, on, on the future of gold, of a future of gold is money uh, that will be held at the Mises Institute, which I'll be moderating. That's very so. exciting. Yeah. Um, so on the Soho debate that you participated yeah. in, um, yeah. I'm wondering, have you maintained a relationship with any of these guys after you've debated them? Like, are the socialists pretty mean to you afterwards or, or are they? Well, um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, my, me personally. Well, um, did, I did six debates and uh, I guess I don't have a relationship that I've maintained with them personally. I mean, I didn't have a relationship prior to this because the people I've debated are pretty much in a different walk of life, three socialists. So, uh, and obviously they didn't like the fact that they lost. And so, I mean, it's not like they're my enemy. I, I do, I do tweet, I do twit Richard Wolf, who's got, Richard Wolf is the guy I, I debated with, the, we had 5.2 million views. Every time I reach a milestone with debates, with the, with the, with the, with the YouTube views, I release that on his web, on his, on his Twitter feed to, to alert people. Uh, the other, of course, I guess, uh, to, to put a finer point on the answer to your question is that uh, uh, Richard Wolf in particular, uh, a week after our debate at the So Forum, he appeared in New York City, uh, and as part of a general presentation, he spoke for ten minutes about what transpired at the debate he had with a libertarian. And uh, I, 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 uh, I have that link uh, to uh, to that ten minute rant he delivered, which I also release, and I uh, I, I actually semi seriously offer a lifetime subscription to all our so form debates if you can possibly verify a single thing that Richard Wolf said happened between us. He goes on for ten minutes completely fantastic.
fantasizing about what I said and what he said. Not a single thing holds up and is valid. And of course, the craziest part of it is that all you have to do is listen to the debate, the debates on, on, on podcast and on YouTube, and then compare what actually transpired with what he recalls. So it was rather reckless of him to represent our debate in the way that he did. But clearly he did, must have had some sore feelings or must have repressed what actually happened between us, given the fact that he was capable of making it all up just a week later. So I did get a little bit annoyed by Richard Wolf, but having done that, uh, uh, it does expose him as a bit of a fraud. He, he can't even recall the simplest details about the nature of the debate that we had. Uh, and so I can tell you. So there's a little bit of animosity between me and him. On the other hand, he lives not far away from me. If I ran into him on the street, I'd greet him in a friendly friendly fashion. Uh, these are civil debates. We don't we don't, we don't exchange insults. Uh, others I've debated. I, I, I debated Steve Moore. Now, I've run into Steve Moore. Steve Moore is, is a sort of a quasi free market guy. He does some valuable things. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, and, uh, but he, uh, he's worked for, I think he's still with, he's with the Heritage Group. Heritage Foundation, I believe, still, although I think maybe he's gone on to some other job. He was working for the Trump administration. Uh, he had a, he was an advisor to Donald Trump, and we debated uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, trade policy. And uh, uh, and now I'm would still be on good terms with Steve Moore. I've run into him, said hello to him uh, subsequent to our debate. I personally was a little miffed because I screwed that one up. I've run I've won five out of my six debates. The only debate that I lost on Oxford style voting, to my astonishment, was the one with Steve Moore. And now and that that was a debate on Trump's trade policy. Now and what I, I what I did was uh, was document I thought that nothing that Trump was saying about China's trade uh, policy behavior was the least bit valid. I cited the Wall Street Journal, I cited the Cato Institute showing that the real violators of free trade agreement was not the not the Chinese, but the Americans. The American government was really violating and it was just another case in which we go to war, so to speak, quote unquote, against another power and then we make it all up. Now, uh, Steve Moore was up there making it all up, claiming that, uh, that China is the big uh, offense and then, but in the middle of the debate, he started to sort of give ground and back off. And uh, but, but that morning, he just met with Donald Trump. He was he announced he and the president had met. He met with the, in the Oval Office with the president. Maybe that helped him because, to my astonishment, I picked up a lot of votes, but he picked up more votes. And I was wondering, how did I blow this? I don't know how. Uh, but uh, it was like I'm 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 arguing with the president that it says maybe there were a lot of Trump supporters in the audience. Now again, it's not that. That big a deal. Uh, it, it was an exchange of views. The debate lives on on, on, on video and audio, and, and and the real judge of the people who listen to it. But uh, but again, I was uh, I was I was rather surprised that the vote went against me when it looked like Steve was on was on the ropes. But I mentioned Steve Moore because he at least is one person. He he still we still travel in the same circle, so I could still run into him. And he has done he's definitely done some useful work, even though I guess I had to implicitly accuse him on stage of being a lying mouthpiece for the administration, which is what he was at that point. He was basically making it all up about China's of, uh, offensive behavior before the World Trade Organization. The, 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 the Cato Institute had shown that China had actually behaved pretty well and that 
the country that really violated world trade agreements was the US. So uh, uh, let's see, that's my long-winded answer to your question. Do I maintain contact with any of these people? Um, only, uh, only occasionally with Steve Moore. Throughout all of your debates with socialists, I, I wonder what has been the best argument or maybe the best debater that you've heard, um, maybe even throughout all of your readings. Has any argument that you, you've come across actually challenged you a little bit? Oh, well, anything. Well, the answer is no. Nothing has challenged me, probably because, as we've already established, I've been there and done that. You know, I, I spent years as a socialist. I know those I know those guys better than they know themselves. I know those women and men better than they know themselves. I'm familiar with them. I came from that background. Uh, and uh, and so there's nothing that they can tell me that I haven't heard before. And uh, but of course, what I, perhaps you if you've listened to the debates, my, my core argument about about democratic socialism, the kind of socialism they argue for, that many of them, including Richard Wolf, they'll say something bad about the Soviet Union, but the next thing you know, they're saying something good about it. They're a little bit difficult to pin down about what they really think about the horrors of socialism. Uh, but of course, that's an obvious one. You know, the record of socialism is pretty appalling. And uh, so if you recommend, if you're, if you're arguing for something that has so much blood on its, on its hands, don't you bear a pretty heavy burden of proof you can't be complacent and yet these people are complacent uh, but they'll never they'll never seem to, to 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 come to grips with the fact that that they're selling something that's been pretty pernicious uh, and uh, and then indeed getting back to my mother who's a communist even she began to abandon the soviet union after the soviet union unraveled in the in the 1990s but of course my core argument with the socialists is something I discovered years ago, which is that if their if their basic case is that workers should own the means of production, as I documented over and over again in all three debates, that could happen pretty quickly. There's nothing in capitalism that says how firms should be run. All that capitalism says is that the means of production is privately owned. There are private property rights. But obviously, that doesn't mean the workers can't own the firm or run the firm. Of course, they can. And because I'm an economist, I was able to show how easy it is to bring that about if indeed it does speak to deep needs and desires, as Richard Wolff has said. Uh, that's it. That's a quote from him, that the desire to run your own firm, run the, your own firm and take it away from the managers speaks to deep needs and desires. So if that's the case, it shouldn't be very difficult for uh, you know, two thirds of the workers to be rallied behind that idea. And my key point is that the workers actually have more capital funds than, than people realize. But apart from that, they've got control of the consumer dollar. And with the consumer dollar, they can simply patronize the firms that are worker owned. It's can, it can be done in all kinds of ways. And then ironically, I, uh, I, I actually uh, was, uh, was researching the worker ownership movement back in the 1980s because I took a special interest in it at the time. And, uh, and 
and they were constantly touting what a firm you may have heard of, Mondragon in Spain. Mondragon in Spain is purportedly a very successful worker-owned firm in Spain. It was started in a poor country, a country far poorer than the United States. Somehow the workers managed to get it off the ground in a far poorer country than the U.S. And uh, we were supposed to hope that Mondragons would be formed in the U.S. Well, that was back in the 1980s, 40 years ago. We have yet to see a company in the U.S. on the scale of Mondragon. And if Mondragon is, as Ben Burgess, he's one of my guys I debated, likes to say, is if it's been such a fantastic success, then should it be that difficult to sell it to, to unions and to the working classes in this country to start Mondragons? Well, most people are simply not interested in, in running their own firm. Most people prefer to be wage and salary earners. But uh, but uh, again, they don't have to bring about. Uh, they don't. Let me start that sentence again. They can only resort and propose the, the, the iron fist of government to bring about their dream, because once again, the, the, you have to call their bluff and bear in mind that workers don't really want what they're selling. And if workers don't want what they're selling, their only recourse is to try to con get control of the government by, a, by a the ballot box through an election. But, uh, but if they get 51% of the vote, then they will use government to seize uh, and impose worker ownership through the iron fist on, the, on, on, on all of enterprise. Now that will be a, a gross injustice, a grotesque seizure of property by the government. That's what they propose because the workers are simply not accepting what they want. And then I make the point that, that if they are true Marxists, if they truly care about the, the left-wing tradition of a revolution from below, if they truly are, are people, uh, are intellectuals of the people, then of course, work ownership should come about in the way that I propose, the, through bottom up rather than top down. And yet top down solutions are their only solution. So I'm, I guess I'm speaking rather heatedly because of course these people do get me a bit impatient. Uh, they, they can't let go uh, of, of, of their crazy ideas uh, because secretly, secretly, I guess they know that uh, workers are not, are not going for it, are not buying it, uh, are not really supporting what they want. Now, the other part of it, uh, ironically, I, I think it's a bit ironically, is that I would personally like to see more worker ownership. I think that the more people become interested in, in, in running enterprise and in understanding the headaches and problems of running enterprise, I think the healthier, healthier our society would become. And so uh, I tell them, look, I, I kept, telling Richard Wolf in our debate, I welcome what you propose. Just do it the right way. Don't resort to the iron fist of government the way so many socialists have in the past. Uh, and I think that part of the problem with somebody like Richard Wolf in particular is that he does have an authoritarian streak and, and that it doesn't really appeal to him to talk to workers. Uh, and uh, I say I think that's part of it. But I'm I'm just grateful for the fact that I I didn't I wasn't really interested in convincing them, the, my socialist debaters about that point of view. I was just interested in 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 uh, in parading their ideas before uh, the public with 5.2 million YouTube uh, views of my debate with Richard Wolf and the other two I got over 100,000, which is still pretty significant. So a lot of people have heard these ideas and, and seen them aired and seen them exposed for the fraudulence that they are.
So uh, to answer your question again, I've been there, done that, and there's very little that the socialists can tell me, practically nothing the socialists can tell me that's worth listening to. Yeah, it seems like the, the core of the argument is really just separating voluntary socialism from political socialism or forceful socialism. Yeah. And, and what you're suggesting is that maybe we can have socialist values just peacefully. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. Uh, vol vol voluntary socialism is synonymous with free market capitalism, it's synonymous in the sense voluntary socialism is perfectly achievable within free market capitalism. There are some worker owned firms. There are a lot of people who like to run their own firms. Uh, and so uh, that's all perfectly possible. So long live voluntary socialism. And that, of course, is the whole point. Uh, and, uh, and, and indeed, uh, you summarize it pretty well. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, as I say, it, it's a matter of, of, of inclination, but I would, I would prefer to see more worker ownership. Some, some might not. Although, although I will say that, uh, yeah, that I, um, I, I worked for, uh, for uh, News Corp, Dow Jones, and uh, I, I would not want, probably would not want to be a part of a worker-owned firm any more than I like to be a part of a, of a, of a residential co-op. I think it's better run by landlords and by responsible people. So I probably wouldn't want that. In the case of, of the other guy, Ben Burgess, who actually probably put up the best argument uh, uh, more than Richard Wolff did. Uh, ben Burgess is, is in a way the worst only because he actually has explicitly said, as I pointed out when I debated him, that he, in his social society, would make it unlawful to work for a firm that was conventionally run. You would be legally obligated to, uh, to work for a worker-owned firm. Uh, you would have no choice. And uh, I, I regret a little bit that I wasn't a little harder on him when he was asked on the floor, well, would you put these people in prison? Because he, who insist on working for uh, conventionally run firms, because he hemmed and he hawed and he was able to say, oh, well, he'd be reluctant to put such people in prison. But of course, he made it fairly clear that, that he would be prepared to punish you if you tried uh, so, something so dastardly as to work for a conventionally run firm. And that's, again, my problem with Ben Burgess, who's a, who's a nice guy personally, but he too clearly has an authoritarian streak. There are socialists who, when given that dilemma, that problem, well, you know, let's say people prefer to work for a firm that's managed by others and that's owned by others. What, what then? If, you're, if you respect, you know, human choice and some a number of socialists say, well, I guess we'd have to put up with that. You know, that, but Ben Burgess is, I, I asked Ben, I guess somewhat provocatively, well, at the debate, uh, why, uh, why would you make it unlawful? What are you afraid of? You know, what are you afraid of? And because, well, I mean, he must be afraid of the fact that a lot of people, in, even once he creates a social society, are going to drift away from what he thinks is such a good idea for them. Uh, but he wasn't able to back down from that. And again, it unfortunately does reveal in him a, 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 a strong authoritarian streak that I find rather dismaying. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think one of the most pernicious kind of ideas that comes out of leftism that I, I discovered at the university was the idea of kind of false consciousness, that that the reason they want to escape voluntary um, associations is because they, they or, or the reason they make that argument yeah. is because they think if people are voluntarily associating, they, they all already know that that people will tend towards capitalism. So they have to make up this 
this idea of um, yeah. false consciousness to escape that. Well, you know, that's interesting that that not in, in the three debates I had, the other one was with a guy named Baskos and Kara, uh, who published a book that were part of a basic books about about social. None of them actually used that phrase, false conscious consciousness, which is, of course, uh, a phrase I'm quite familiar with uh, that, uh, you know, that the workers, uh, you know, support capitalism because they're uh, they've got false consciousness, they're conscious of falsities, they're confused, and therefore we've got to teach them. Uh, and uh, none of them actually used that phrase. They kept insisting that workers really want uh, uh, worker ownership. So they were they were caught a little bit. But of course, uh, that's, you know, if they had used that argument of false consciousness, uh, I would have said that, uh, well, look, you know, the, the, the we just simply have to make our choice uh, as, as people who respect human rights. If you, if you want to use uh, uh, authoritarianism, if you want to use force to impose your will on people, because in your opinion, they suffer from false consciousness, then I can only call you an authoritarian. You don't want to be patient enough to point out to them that, as Richard Rule says, work ownership speaks to deep needs and desires. You don't want to be patient enough to point out to them that there are worker-owned firms and look how wonderfully they operate. You you don't want to be patient enough to point out to them that, that Mondragon, as, as as Ben Burgess said, it's a huge success. Well, let's all sit down and watch a movie, a documentary about how everybody's so happy at Mondragon. Can't you pierce the false consciousness of all these stupid workers? Uh, or, or maybe, maybe you can come to respect the fact that they're making another choice in life, that that they that they uh, that they don't really suffer from false consciousness, but that the deal that's being offered them, decent salary and decent benefits, uh, and a decent job, and they'd rather not have to suffer the headaches of running. A company they'd rather think about other things in their life isn't that a possible choice as well and so uh, they, that's of course the only thing you can say to these people who insist on the false consciousness point that that if you want to go around saying that others have false consciousness and that you've got to use uh use force the force of government to, to get them to go along with what you want and if on top of that if you're ben burgess and you want to throw them in prison if they have a stray from the creed and go back to false consciousness then then you clearly cannot be called uh, uh, someone who respects human choice, human wishes, or even human beings. That's really all you can declare if they're going to hide behind the false consciousness cloak. But I was a little somewhat surprised that actually none of them used that phrase, false consciousness. I don't know why they didn't resort to it, but none of them did. Yeah, I, th I think the my favorite argument that you made was almost that like, I'm going to try to summarize it, that no. capitalism is is somewhat democratic, that that how can you expect yeah. or it's more democratic than um what they would want yeah um yeah. that like how would this majority or more majoritarian system um possibly account for the kosher restaurant or yeah. all of these minority voices that need to be represented and I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if you can kind of rehash that well i mean i, I mean there's uh, different aspects to the democracy the, the uh issue as a matter of fact uh, I, I, I learned from an insight of, of Thomas Sowell's. I highly recommend Thomas Sowell, and I actually think he's more of an Austrian economist than even he seems to acknowledge, mm -hmm. because he writes he writes about the market as process. And of course, his one of his key books, 
uh, knowledge and decisions is inspired by uh, by Friedrich Hayek, uh, even though Soul goes wrong about a lot of things and actually has not read a whole lot of Austrians. But, uh, but the one aspect about democracy is the idea of the dollar votes, that uh, the protest about capitalism would be that uh, rich people have more dollar votes than poor people. And so uh, and so therefore it's it's an unequal democracy, whereas in uh, under a democracy, we have one man, one person, one vote. So isn't that more equal and so on. Uh, but uh, but really uh, that as Saul points out that that really that that's a very exaggerated point because uh, because the the math the, the the masses actually control more dollars than rich people do so so by and large the the, uh, the great fortunes are made by selling to the masses by and large goods and services cater to the masses because the in, in terms of the numbers that I throw out which I looked up is that uh, the, the lower 90 percent controls nearly 80 percent of all consumer spending accounts for nearly 80 percent of all consumer spending and so by and large, it's the, uh, you know, the, the, the expensive estates are taken over by development. So for them, and also on top of that, as Saul pointed out, oftentimes the rich people are voting on the side of the masses anyway. They're also going to sports, sporting events and, and casting their vote in the same way. So it's a very exaggerated point. But then, of course, the other part of it gets into to what you touched on when you mentioned the kosher restaurants, which, of course, is that a minority taste. Uh, can be much more easily accommodated uh, that uh, when you have top-down control, then the minority, then then the rights of the minority uh, to, uh, to to do to go its own way to produce in the way that it wants uh, is uh, you know much more easily exercised under capitalism. So I think it works works well in both ways in realizing the wishes of the board masses of people. Uh, when I mentioned, and matter of fact, um, you remind me that when I debated Ben Burgess, um, he uh, he responded to my argument about uh, about minority taste. Uh, you know how would how would dissident publications get money? You know you you're giving the government the power to allocate over dissident publications or ideas that Steve Jobs would float. Uh, the, the the guy would have been thrown out of the the, the socialist planning agencies. Um, None nothing that he ever thought up it was it just came out of his own head. He refused to even have focus groups on on what he proposed. He just thought these were these were ideas that he could finance, and he brought them out. And of course now we all use smartphones. Uh, and so it would be impossible to conceive that you could centralize decision making in this way. Ben Burgess made this argument about how, well, look at the way uh, people start companies and they're given licenses and they're allowed to continue. So he made this sort of lame argument that, uh, that, that you know, since minority taste already does OK now and, 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 no, and they're not uh, driven under by government once they create themselves, then, then things would be fine. And I, I remember being frustrated in retrospect that I didn't respond to the finer point on that, which is that, that, that he's just saying that, that if you create a company, uh, the, if you are Steve Jobs, the government is going to isn't going to drive you under. Or if you need you need a license for this or a license for that, you can generally get it. All of that. Whereas what he was really proposing is that we 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 appoint uh, tribunals to allocate scarce funds to have decision making power over the responsibility of allocating scarce funds, which is a very different difficult different 
thing. And even if you were to uh, to imagine that they're very liberal minded and that they really wonderful people who make these decisions and that they even have some imagination about new ideas, uh, the idea that that you can possibly trust these people to, to and, and centralize it and make it impossible for anybody to raise funds on his own to launch his own ideas. I mean, that's just crazy and absurd. And of course, we know that people that usually the worst will get on top uh, to paraphrase, to steal a phrase from Friedrich Hayek, that the worst kind of people, the most power hungry people are going to be allocating funds for new ventures. And so that's, of course, going to become oligarchical and extremely anti-democratic. Um, so hopefully that addresses your question, unless you have some other point to make. Yeah. yeah, well, well, it is interesting because, I mean, to the degree that we actually have what they're proposing in this country, like we, we can actually point to um, cases where effectively these boards are um, handing out licenses or that there is like this merger between government and capitalism yeah. and uh, yeah. whether it's the federal reserve board propping up these banks or whether it's yeah. um, you know, boards and in, in cities that determine whether or not there's a need, a certificate of need for yes, hospitals. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. These are all the areas that socialists themselves point to as being very corrupted. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. those are the reasons that I think, I think that's what a libertarian would say is that it's, it's actually this problem um, where to the degree that we have socialism, that, that is actually why we have these problems in the, in those areas. Yeah. Well, uh, for any capitalism. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not clear what you just said that namely that, that you, the socialists recognize it as a problem. Is that what you're saying? Or they do, don't know uh, that the, these areas are areas that they point to as being corrupted, but they'll, they'll say that it is, is capitalistic. So they, they point to the banks, they point to the hospitals, but we can actually look at the mechanism, the specific mechanism um, by which this becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, indeed. It's, it's government interference and government favoritism of, uh, of, of, uh, of established business, regulatory capture as uh, George Stigler, who was also a sort of a fellow traveler, free market, Chicago School Economist put it that reg- regulatory agencies are captured by the very industries that they are set up to uh, regulate, that uh, the uh, Food and Drug Administration is to, to a great degree captured by the powerful drug companies. Uh, they like the fact that it takes a long time to develop a drug because regulatory agencies are very good at making it difficult for competitors to enter the field. And that's what established companies like. Your certificate of need point, of course, is a, is a clear one. The absurd idea that the established hospitals are asked uh, whether they think a competing hospital should establish itself. That you have, I forget why it's called certificate of need. I guess you have to submit and they have, is there a need for this hospital? Well, ask the competing hospitals, you know, if, is there is there a need for this restaurant? Well, if you add the, ask the competing restaurants already established, the restaurants that, that are already established will say, no, there's no need for this restaurant. We don't want the competition. So, of course, it's, a, it's all absurd that to the extent, obviously, to the extent that we have uh, government involved, it is difficult for people to start new firms. And, and clearly the socialists want to enhance that power by giving uh, go- government uh, tribunals, government agencies, the power over allocating scarce funds for uh, for scarce, for alternative uses, and so um, that really does make no sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a few more questions here um, oh. on the point of uh, crony capitalism. You you have talked about capitalism before. 
Capitalism. Yeah. Contraction. My, my uncle Abe, who was a socialist, actually, that was on my father's side, he called capitalism crapitalism. And of course, he meant that capitalism was a load of crap because he was a socialist and actually a supporter of the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, so now I've uh, brilliantly taken the term crony capitalism, contracted it to mean crapitalism with, a, with an R, that indeed, uh, that's a lot of what we have, not, not capitalism, but crapitalism. Go ahead, yes. Yeah, I'm just wondering from your insights about like the 2008 crash. I know that you you've done talks about um, uh, the Dodd Frank Act, um, uh, Fannie and Freddie, um, and I, I'm wondering if if you have any insights in maybe like comparisons to 2008 to today. If you think there are any actors that we should be paying attention to other than the Federal Reserve, like Fannie and Freddie, and if you think that we're in a much worse position now and, and kind of yeah. where you think things are going. All right. Yes. The toughest question of all the, <laughs> the, 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 in the case of the 2008 09 crash, um, it was really, uh, you know, like a no brainer. It was uh, to understand what went on, what was going on. I mean, you, uh, you know, government was taking its pictures, pictures of itself with the hands, with its hands in the till. It was just overwhelmingly clear that uh, on every level that the government was creating a housing bubble, was uh, creating unsustainable malinvestment by encouraging people, by, by forcing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac being government-sponsored enterprises uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to issue mortgages to people of, of limited means that were ultimately unsustainable, that created a housing bubble that crashed. And, uh, and that was what initiated, what sparked uh, the 2008-09 uh, uh, crash of, uh, and uh, the recession that followed it, although I say sparked because I will leave it to, to its being debatable as to whether uh, the, uh, the recession that followed had to be as severe that, as, as it turned out to be. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that we know that the data, the facts, starting with in the 1990s with Bill Clinton, continuing with George W. Bush, continuing with Barney Frank, with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Federal Reserve, we know that that these were the government institutions that created uh, an enormously unstable bubble in housing, and that the housing bubble was, that burst was clearly enough to cause a severe slowdown in the economy. Whether it was enough to actually cause the, the, the really serious crash that followed is a different question. And, and I believe that reasonable people can disagree with, uh, about different aspects of that issue. Was it that once the crash happened that the Federal Reserve acted very imprudently and only made it much worse as a result? Could it have, could, did it have to be as bad as it turned out to be? So uh, that's really, in summary, what happened in 08, 09, and 10. And uh, it's, of course, amazing to me that the mainstream still denies the, the obvious fact that the government was essential, government policy was essential to bringing that one about. That was a clear case of sort of Austrian malinvestment in the housing field, and it could be overwhelmingly documented as having 
taken place? And so that's the easy part of the question. The tough part of the question, the impossible part of the question is the one you're asking me now. Um, we, we, have a, a, we have a number of sort of bubble situations in different markets. Um, I, don't, I don't really know if we have such a severe bubble in housing. We do have one. We do have malinvestment in other areas. That's a little bit difficult to discern. We've got the, the one thing I'm fairly clear about is that the Federal Reserve has, uh, has created uh, a, a price inflation that will likely become double digit in a way it already has become a double digit price inflation and um, and that that it happened because of the classic way in which the government needed to finance its debt there, there was an enormous uh, several trillion dollar surge in debt created by the federal government that, that that debt was monetized it was bought by the federal reserve it wasn't bought by the marketplace, if, 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 if the government issues debt and it's bought by people who want to buy bonds, that doesn't necessarily induce uh, an inflation. You need a monetary expansion to induce inflation. And that monetary expansion came because the Federal Reserve bought up trillion dollars worth of debt with created money. And that created money uh, led to an explosion in a, in a conventional measure, measure of money supply known as M2. M2 is uh, cash and checks uh, and uh, savings accounts, money market. And that, that explosion in M2 uh, set off the price inflation that we're suffering from now. And the Federal Reserve is now ineptly trying to cope with it. And, uh, and, I'm, and of course, it's 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 likely to bring about a recession, and uh, with, 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 I, I think that it's a real mystery as to whether it's going to be a severe recession or whether it's going to be a mild recession. I have to ask my my, my Austrian colleagues: Can you tell me? I ask them why, if we review the history of recessions since uh, the uh, since the nineteen seventies, uh, we've had a pretty severe recession in mid mid seventies. We had a very severe one in the early eighties, and then we had two mild recessions in the early 90s and, and in 2001. Why, did, why were those recessions mild? It's, a, it's difficult to know. Um, I, I think I think that even in here we have the benefit of hindsight, and yet and yet it's it's very difficult. We don't have the data to be able to tell us whether to, to sort out the healthy aspects of an expansion from the unhealthy aspects, healthy versus unhealthy. Because I insist on saying that we still have a, a, a powerful aspects of free market capitalism in this economy, and yet we still have enormous distortions of, and, and malinvestment occurring. And we never quite know. Uh, uh, we we can't just cite data about about all the monetary expansion and say, well, that's all that's malinvestment. We never quite know. We did we did have a pretty good fix on what the housing bubble was all about. But even then, as I say, the the, the idea that the that the bursting of the housing bubble touched up such a, a downturn in the U.S. economy is still a bit of a mystery as to why it happened. So uh, I I don't know if I've answered your question. Where are we headed? Well, we're definitely headed. For for some kind of recession, probably not this year, probably next year. A recession that's if, if that that can be easily enough explained, actually, by 
by mainstream arguments, which is that the that the, uh, the Federal Reserve is, is raising interest rates. The interest rate is is uh, is touching off, uh, making it more and more difficult for the market economy to function. It's raising the, the short term interest rate in particular uh, is what it's raising the Fed funds rate, and that short term interest rate is probably going to make it so that uh, the economy is going to slow. Whether it's going to be a severe recession or a mild recession, uh, I'm I have difficulty being able to answer that question. Uh, one of my, if, if, if many of my free market colleagues were sitting in this room uh, answering the same question, they'd probably say, I, I gotta be crazy. Look at all the monetary expansion, look at all the insanity the government is, uh, had, had, has inflicted on the economy. It's, it's gonna end disastrously. Well, they could be right. Uh, but uh, but I'd have to ask them. Well, explain to me why it was so mild in ninety in nineteen ninety one and in two thousand one. I think it's difficult to do so. With that said, we do we do have a fiscal crisis of the state that that is definitely happening in 10, 12, 13 years. We have unsustainable debt that 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 keeps piling up by the by the federal government, and I think that's going to cause problems ten to fifteen years from now. So I think I mostly ducked your question, although I answered part of it, uh, hopefully. But uh, well, maybe, you have, maybe you have an opinion uh, to express of your own, or maybe a challenge to what I just said. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you think foreign policy at all um, will threaten the value of the dollar. Yeah, foreign policy yeah. threatening the value of the dollar. And I, I wonder if that um, variable influences your opinion at all, or if you think that it's not as, if you still think it's not as big of a concern. Well, um, I perhaps I have to remind you, the dollar is now uh, unusually strong in relation to foreign currencies. You probably know, that. you know, the, the, the euro, the euro currency is in the euro and all the British pound is taking a pounding. The, the dollar is actually doing well against the Japanese yen as well. Against major currencies, the dollar is pretty strong right now. And uh, and and it, it gets back to the to the old question about well the U.S. economy is screwing up, but compared to what? You know the the U.S. economy is screwing up, but compared to other other economies, it's not doing quite as badly as those those economies are doing. And and so uh, so the dollar is actually strong. Interestingly enough, when I talk about the fiscal crisis of the state. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, because of the huge pileup of debt, then there, uh, part of what would bring about this crisis would be a weak dollar. Uh, but that may or may not happen. That, by the way, is an opportunity 10 to years from now, 15 years from now, for gold or Bitcoin, for, for uh, where, where instead of having to compare the dollar with the euro or the dollar with the British pound or the Japanese yen or with the Chinese renminbi, maybe we'll compare it with, with, it, with, with gold or with with Bitcoin. But I've been disconcerted by the fact that Bitcoin has been weak. Bitcoin seems to be, uh, and crypto generally, as you know, has been behaving more or less like the stock market. Gold, the gold market has also been relatively flat to down. The, the one would have thought that cryptocurrencies uh, and Bitcoin in particular, and uh, gold as well, would be doing well would be doing better as a hedge against hard times when you have price inflation and fears about a downturn, and yet uh, they're not doing well at all. And so that too is a little bit confusing and disconcerting. Uh, but um, but with respect to the dollar right now, uh, the, uh, the 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 dollar is strong, and uh, and it's it's making it, it is actually uh, causing some easement of 
price inflation because it means that uh, that the imports into the U.S. economy are being bought with a stronger dollar, and that those imports, in terms of dollars, are actually cheaper uh, to the uh, to to, uh, to to U.S. importers than they otherwise would be, uh, and so that's actually helped matters to some degree. Whereas the 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 Europeans the Europeans actually have to buy oil in dollars because uh, because oil is denominated in dollars, and they've got to use their their euros to buy those dollars, so they're being hurt. By this, that, by the situation, uh, by the fact that the euro is so weak, uh, so uh, so the dollar is doing pretty well. Uh, yeah. So I, I have one more question. Um, just only to, one more. Okay. Yeah, just to change topics. Uh, exhausted me completely. I guess is that all? Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's more uh, it's closer to home for you. I'm wondering if uh, oh. New York is. Oh. a lot better than it was two years ago. And, and if it's, uh, I, I don't know if you saw, but there was an article, I, I forget which publication that came out in, but it was saying that New York is the most libertarian city in the country. Um, I, I forget which publication this was, but it's, it's a little laughable. Um, so do you want to just talk about the state of New York? And how Okay, good. Well, that's that last question that, that I'm going to take my take about an hour to answer it because okay. it's one of my passions so we've got one hour left and i'm going to answer your question i'm kidding i guess i'll i'll give you the give you the short answer to that question uh which is that um there, there actually is some truth in the statement some truth in the statement about new york being a libertarian city because indeed uh, the, the the truth is that it's still filled with entrepreneurial energy it's uh, if you go to the outer boroughs and look at the immigrant restaurants and uh, and, uh, and the american pizzerias the, the 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 ways in which new york has has benefited from the influence flux of immigrants in its outer boroughs and and the, and the entrepreneurial energy that they brought to those outer boroughs. My my wife owns a, owns a residential building. Uh, we live downtown, and uh, and uh, she's uh, and there, there is a space for a restaurant in that building. There's two young Korean guys who are starting a restaurant. They're there every day cleaning it up, uh, energetically backing it. You walk 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 the streets, and you see stores. You see you see entrepreneurship. You see a whole lot of people who 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 have smarts and who have enthusiasm who who want to run their own businesses and and uh, and so that's that's what i call libertarianism in addition of course the the new york ethos is 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 uh it's not you know it's not live free or die as it is in new hampshire but there is there is a certain libertarian ethos on the streets of new york you can be gay you can be straight you can be trans you can be whatever you want to be you can walk naked down the street probably not get arrested so so there is a certain libertarian tradition the theater i'm a theater goer theater buff uh, and uh, i i love the theater and you look at these small theaters uh, I, I go to the uh, the far side of 42nd street they, they, they revive old plays act people who love to act on the stage who make relatively little who have maybe day jobs and night jobs but but they but they but they want to keep theater alive they're like over 100 legitimate theaters in Manhattan and in, and in uh, Brooklyn and Queens. And so all of that entrepreneurial energy I regard as libertarian. The, the general feeling of live and live, live I regard as libertarian. 
On the other hand, of course, now I'm saying the economist, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, we do have progressive lunatics and uh, and and we do have the government and we do have all, all these crazy rules and regs and we do have uh, people who apparently think that, uh, that you should walk down the street wearing a mask, you know, and so that's ugly, that's awful. And uh, and so in that sense, uh, we are, uh, you know, you, you know with, with the Soviet social, with the People's Republic of, of New York City. And so that's the other aspect of New York City. Now, I've been tempted to move to the Free State of New Hampshire. I've, I've got a stepson who lives up there and his wife, and, uh, and I've become friends with a lot of people up in New Hampshire. Unfortunately, I am 77 years old. I live in New York since since the mid 60s. It's a little bit too late for me. Plus, I I, I operate the Soul Forum, which, by the way, Soul Forum is entrepreneurial. I, I rent a space. I, I I run the parties, so I'm part of that uh, ferment as well. Proud to have become a social entrepreneur in my old age. Uh, and so, uh, but I, I I do find it tempting to move. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it's a little late for me. I might have considered moving to New Hampshire if, if, let's say, I were 20 years younger. Now, I do like, of course, I'm a city person. I do like the vibrancy of the streets, the the, the heterogeneity of all the people in the street. Look, the fact that, I mean, what 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 is what is the other tradition of the city? You know, the outcasts from the countryside come here. You know, the, the, the gays, the transgender people, the, the, the people, the people who don't fit in uh, to on, in, in, in the, the provinces that they come from, can come to New York, they can find uh, people of like mind. Getting back to the, your point about the kosher restaurants and the minority taste, you know, in a large city, as, as the quasi-libertarian uh, thinker Jane Jacobs taught us, you can open up a specialty store. You know, if, if you have a decent enough location, then, then, then there's enough foot traffic uh, for you to make a living running that store. Much more difficult to do it if you're in a provincial area of high density living leads to a great deal of heterogeneity. But of course, on the other hand, the high taxes and all the other punitive imp imposition by government makes it hard for you to survive. So it's a very mixed bag. But there is something to the idea that, look, it's a little bit ridiculous to say it's the most libertarian city, but there is something to the idea that there is the spirit of the free market and libertarianism uh, alive and well in cities like New York. Well, we've run through all of my questions. Uh, I have really appreciated you coming on the show. I value your time. And sure. uh, if you want to just pitch your social media or the websites for the Soho Forum, yeah. please do. Yeah. Um, well, uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, I never thought I would actually be doing a lot of Twitter. Uh, I certainly wouldn't have been doing it when it was 140 characters, but at 280 characters, I can do maybe a thread uh, and a Twitter comment. Uh, my, my Twitter uh, feed is at Gene Soho Forum, my Twitter handle, I guess you call it, at Gene Soho Forum. And uh, for um, we, we are going down to the Mises Institute. Uh, again, this could be aired after we're there. But on August 15th, will this be aired before August 15th? I'm, I'm actually going to try to upload it today if I can. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, uh, we, uh, we are going to be at uh, downtown at uh, the... Uh, uh, at the Sheen Center on uh, 18 Bleecker Street with our debates. Uh, in August 15th, we're having a debate on climate change. Uh, uh, September, mid-September, we're having a debate on, uh, on, on nuclear weapons. Uh, 
And uh, those are the two that are coming up. Uh, if, if you go into thesoulforum.org, the, it's got to be the, the Soul Forum. Uh, that's how we register, thesoulforum.org. Then you can register as a subscriber and get all our newsletters and be able to be informed about our debates. Uh, we, we, we now have a system, I have a system, I should say, where uh, the party that we, ha that we have after, afterwards, uh, the crowd can't be accommodated at the Sheen Center. We have, it's a large auditorium, but they don't really have a space for the party. We used to have a place that we went to which shut down uh, during the lockdowns and it's not reopened. It's where we could have both the, uh, the debate and then the party. But now we have the debate at the Sheen Center on 18 Bleecker Street, and then you just walk up two blocks uptown to the loft apartment that I share with my wife, artist Hisako Kobayashi, which is where we have the reception. And, uh, and uh, so that's been our model that exhausts my wife a little bit to do the reception, but it's been a lot of fun. I find it to, to have a hundred people over with, with that enthusiasm and that interest in intellectual ideas uh, always puts me in a great mood. So that's what we do. We're two, we have a twofold mission to have an interesting debate, but then to have a party afterwards where you can come talk about the debate with people and meet other people uh, and, uh, and have, a, uh, have a decent time with food and wine. So again, that's um, uh, August 15th and actually September 19th are our next two debates and go to thesohoforum.org uh, for that information at Gene Soho Forum for my Twitter handle. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gene. I, I really appreciate it. Delighted. And I guess I'll see you at the Mises Institute. Yep. I'll see yeah. you there.